You're listening to the Journeys of Scientists podcast put on by MSU WAMPS. These are casual conversations with graduate students in a variety of fields to learn about their experiences, research, and what brought them to where they are today. To keep up to date with future WAMPS events, be sure to check out our website at WAMPS.org and follow us on social media. We are MSU WAMPS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On this episode, we're joined by Marcia Chiasi, an MD-PhD epidemiology trainee at Michigan State University, studying clustering techniques in genetic epidemiology and chronic pelvic pain and endometriosis. Her background in research is in airborne infectious disease transmission and environmental health. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, Marzia. Could you briefly introduce yourself? What's your area of study? For sure. Uh, so my name is Marzia Giasi. I am a six-year uh, MD-PhD at MSU. So I am in the dual degree program doing a medical degree and also a PhD degree in epidemiology. And that is an eight-year program. So I'm heading there towards the end now. So pretty exciting stuff. <laughs> Great. Could you explain a little bit of like how like the MD PhD program differs from someone that's just doing one or the other? For sure. Yeah. So um, it really is uh, sometimes it depends on the school, how programs are arranged, but generally dual de- degree programs in the U S and Canada are um, basically if you're going into a medical program, such as we have your CHM, you are going into a four-year program. You're doing four years, you get an MD degree, and then you go on to residency. If you're going into a PhD program, like epidemiology or physics or whatever, um, you're going into a program for three to seven to 10, 10 years, however long a PhD can take. And then from there, you go into a postdoc. And then you know from there, whatever pathway industry or um, academia. In an MD-PhD program, you are generally doing um, four years of MD combined with four to six years of a PhD program. Different places arrange it differently. So um, some places you can start with the PhD and then go into the MD. Traditionally, though, it's that you do two years of the medical program so that beginning where you're learning basic sciences. And then after passing your um, sort of uh, examinations, you go to the PhD program and complete your PhD. And then in your final two years, you go back for the last two years of medical school, which is the clinicals. Um, You graduate with a dual degree and you go to residency to kind of get complete the medical training. And then from there, you can go to kind of become a physician practitioner know, completely out of academia, but a lot of people with um, sort of MD-PhD, they're, they're on the track to do academic research. So they they kind of go on to do sort of um, medical research combined with um, practicing as a physician. So it's it's a long, yeah. long path. <laughs> <laughs> and so then you said you did stuff that was like in epidemiology. Can you explain like what it is you do there? Yeah, for sure. So I'm doing uh, my PhD in epidemiology and I actually have a master's in epidemiology. So it's been, it's been the long call for me. Um, I currently, I research in um, epidemiology of uh, women's uh, health. So focusing on chronic pelvic pain and also a disease called endometriosis, which affects um, essentially what is a uh, 
the uterus, you know, the organ, um, women's bodies, um, the lining that's inside the uterus is actually found in places outside the uterus. Um, it can be found anywhere in the body, um, generally in the abdomen, um, in the pelvic area, but it can be anywhere in the body. And so um, it causes a lot of problems and it affects about 10% of women cause, can cause a lot of pain. Um, but there are a lot of other diseases that can cause chronic pelvic pain too. So I'm kind of studying the dynamics of endometriosis, but also chronic pelvic pain as a whole. Um, and yeah, so really what I'm looking at is also um, some of the novel techniques that we are using in epidemiology to really understand disease as a whole, um, not just restricted to these conditions. Um, so we are so, so during my PhD, I've worked on genetic epidemiology, looking at large scale um, genomic data to try to figure out why um, there is like heterogeneity in the ways that we see these um, diseases present. And also, I've been working on um, statistical techniques to figure out how we can actually um, use data to sort of split populations apart to understand them better, better rather than kind of rely on um, sort of the opinion of a physician, for example, saying, you know, I, I think this person has this. So um, it's all pretty, you know, exciting to do. Yeah. And so then correct me if I'm wrong then. So it sounds like, you know, when I think of like MD work, you're, you're a doctor and you interact with, you know, like an individual and like a patient, on like a kind of one-on-one -on -one basis, more or less. But then with your epidemiology sort of type work, it seems like you're looking at a large breadth of people. So like, where do you kind of fall on things? Are you doing things with like small groups of people one-on-one? -on -one, or are you just looking at like data in like a large a large set or? Yeah, so that's that's actually really interesting. This this was my, um, when I was applying to the dual degree program, it was <laughs> kind of my essay. I was like, well, I can't decide between small and the large, so I'm gonna do both. Um, Epidemiology really is um, the study of large populations, right? Um, it is not so much at all concerned with the individual. Um, it's about the means, the averages, sort of um, understanding what are the extremes, what is at the middle. Um, and for that, you need large numbers. So, for example, in studies that we've done on, in genetics epidemiology, uh, we had um, participants over, for example, um, 300,000 people, right? Um, sort of whose data we are using to sort of get these insights into um, sort of the features of the population. Um, whereas for someone who is a clinician for um, you know, a day to day going to the clinic, those those large numbers really they're not dealing with those kinds of numbers. They're talking to a patient, seeing their life and their circumstance and trying to make the best decisions. But what's interesting is increasingly more so um, than ever. And it's and it's becoming even more so now. Um, decisions in medicine are becoming guided by findings in epidemiology. So what we call evidence-based medicine, EBM, is really based in the data that we get from epidemiology, right? So um, all the algorithms that now exist in medicine are coming from these um, large population data. When you go to a clinician and they tell you, you know, your risk of, um, your risk of hypertension, for example, high blood pressure is 
XX percent. And if you decrease your salt intake, it's going to be this much. And if you increase it, it's going to be this much. It's not that they didn't, you know, personally go and study, you know, sit Mm -hmm. in your room and study you personally. They're taking those based on population averages. And I, it's, it's, it's becoming more and more right Um, with personalized medicine, these kinds of um, sort of data are becoming more commonly used in clinics and there is good aspects. And, you know, there's also, of course, some critics of it, some old school kind of uh, thinking that, you know, uh, maybe it's not necessarily so great for the patient that they're just kind of becoming numbers. So it's, it's, it's a fine balance, but um, that's kind of how it is. Yeah. And so then, you know, before we said, um, before we were recording, you're saying, oh, you're pretty close to like defending, I'm assuming the PhD portion, and then you'll go back to the MD sort of, right? Yes. Yep. So defending next month, um, the PhD and um, actually, I, I, I believe that it's going to, I'm not 100% yet. I believe it's going to end up on uh, May 4th, which is, uh, you know, may the fourth be with you. I'm actually, I'm a bit of a Trekkie, so it's mm. ironic that it's going to be. <laughs> I was like, maybe I should get a lightsaber and just wave it around <laughs> while defending. But yeah, so and then after that, I go back to medical school for the um, clerkship, the sort of um, active hands-on training per- portion of the program. Yeah. So then like, what do you kind of, or, or are you still kind of in this limbo of like, I don't know whatever I want to do, like new more clinician or like large population stuff like have you can't decide like where you can't want to lean towards after all this yeah so I think for me I started out wanting to be a scientist so um, just to kind of rewind um, I did my undergrads multiple and then um, at that time I knew that I kind of wanted to continue on in science and science 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 research I I'd always like ever since high school, I'd always been involved in some capacity in research. And when I got to my master's, I was like, well, you know what? I really enjoy this stuff. I'm definitely going to, you know, continue on in academia. And it was really in my master's where I was working with a lot of clinicians where, you know, they were like, you should get your own MD degree and stop asking us these questions because a lot of that work was um, in infectious disease. A lot of it was um, working with people who were um, clinician scientists. And so um, it was, it was kind of, it was, I had no idea dual degree programs existed. And so um, it was an impetus for me to kind of continue on in that. But I think I'm definitely going to continue in research. Not, not all MD PhDs do. Um, some of them just, they're like, I've, you know, I've done my research and you know, I'm just more interested in clinical practice. Um, and that's completely fine. You know, it's still valuable experience. Um, but I think for me, I do want to continue definitely in clinical research um, if I can, you know. Okay. And then like coming back, you said like undergrad degrees or degrees, um, like what was your, you know, what was that all, like, what did you end up studying? Yeah, so um, I actually, so I got accepted to, um, so I studied in, uh, so I'm Canadian, I'm Iranian-Canadian, and so my undergrad was in um, McGill University, which is in Montreal, uh, Quebec, and I got accepted to go to an engineering program, and because I had, you know, I just came from a family of engineers, and of course, that's, you gotta be an engineer, that's the only, it's the only thing to be. Um, but then, you know, I, I decided I want, I was not, you know, I was not 
not super interested in engineering. So I decided to go into the biologic sciences. In the four years, I like shifted multiple degrees. I was in, um, uh, what was it? Physiology, biochemistry. Every year I was changing degrees. I would go to the advisor and they'd be like, again, you're back here. <laughs> so um, I, I ended up graduating with a degree in anatomy and cell biology. And the anatomy was really interesting to me. The reason I ended up there was um, we actually, as undergrads, we got to go into dissection labs. And I'm fascinated by, I think, it, you know, um, just working with the human body from a historical, it's such an ancient way of um, understanding science, right? It's the science of the human body. When you look at 1400s, 1500s, the first sort of dissections and images of the human body, it's, it's just, it's, it's such a, you know, extraordinary thing. So I was like, okay, I'm staying in this degree. Um, so that was, and then after I, so I, there I was at that point, I was really interested in research as well. And so I started researching neuroscience. I worked in a lab um, working with flies and um, sort of beheading thousands and thousands of little tiny flies and then dissecting their little, little um, neuronal ganglia. And then also while, you know, while they were, they had no heads, I would like, um, it's, it's, <laughs> they image, this is all happening under microscope. Mm -hmm. I would tickle them to see how their feet would move without their heads. And I would, um, I would image, I had um, an imaging software, which um, was sort of, um, tuned to the fluorescent chemical that was on the bottom of their feet to see how they actually move their feet. And this, this was a way of um, understanding kind of uh, how, when you isolate specific neural components, how um, these function, right? Some of these were mutant flies. So it, it was a bit of gene work there as well, because I was really interested in genetics as well. Um, but, you know, you can only um, sort of cut off so many fly heads before you start to question your existence, right? <laughs> like, what am I doing this Friday night, um, you know, with making a little fly without a head dance <laughs> and recording pictures of it and then counting the pixels? So I did have an existential crisis as much as I love the science. I was like, what is happening? Um, because it's... Right, go ahead. I was just going to say, and imagine the fly. They probably had an existential exactly. crisis as well. Exactly. I mean, they probably were wondering what is happening to us. Um, you know, it was better than being in a mouse lab because that's in neuroscience, you're either in a fly lab or a mouse lab. And I was like, I'm going to go with the flies. Um, but again, it was, it, was a, it was an interesting time. And so um, I realized that, you know, um, the techniques in neuroscience are very cutting edge and the research is amazing, but the, the pipeline from discovery to application is, is just very distant. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, I thought at that time, I, I kind of, after I graduated, I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Um, I took some time off, did stuff around Montreal. It's a big city, um, you know, worked a little bit, but I was still drawn back to kind of, academia and school. So I was taking like random courses here and there. And I actually ended up um, speaking with an advisor who was like, it sounds like you really like population stuff. And I was like, I don't know, do I? Um, and this was a, um, this was in early 2010s in Quebec, which was a pretty, um, I would say, tense time. It was a politically tense time um, in Quebec um, in terms of there were um, 
massive protests. There was a lot of social upheaval at that time for various reasons. And so um, I ended up going, uh, re-enrolling in an undergrad. And this was a two-year undergrad because when you have an undergrad in Quebec, you can do a short, shorter one as your second undergrad. So it was basically the final two years of an undergrad in environment. So that it was completely off the left field for me. I had, you know, thought of myself, I had a conceptualization of myself as like a bench scientist. This is what I want to be. This is my life. And then I was like, you know, I'm going to join the hippies. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to the commune, but the commune for me was the school of environments. So, um, and I think that was one of the, probably the best academic decision I ever made in my life. It was just such a um, interesting experience to be with um, classmates who were so passionate. Um, So I remember um, this would have been in 2012 or so um, we were, you know, in class and half of our class wasn't there and we were like, well, where, where are our other people? And, um, you know, they were, out um sort of in in our in sort of in the president's office occupying the space for about a week um because just to sort of address some of the issues that were going on getting the school to address some of the issues that were going on so it was a very active exciting place to be right um people were passionate um people were not just kind of you know, trudging along, passing in essays and doing things for no reason. They were there because, you know, they they had sort of an internal mission. And for me, someone coming from a very sort of a, a nerdy program, I guess, it was just such a wonderful thing to see, but also opened my eyes to epidemiology because I, I did get some courses in epi there. And so um, that was kind of my undergrad story. Yeah. Yeah. So I have like lots of questions now, but like... <laughs> So when you were, when you said you were like changing majors a lot, was like, was it because like, oh, you didn't like one, one thing. So you're like, okay, I'll try to find something else. Or was it that like you liked everything and you just like, wasn't sure what you wanted to do? It was more that I liked everything and I just wasn't sure. So it wasn't huge changes. So I wasn't jumping from like um, a whole degree, like um, from cell biology to economics. It wasn't a full, you know, but it was still, you know, cell biology to anatomy or, you know, it was trying to kind of discover new things until I um, landed on something I liked. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, and it's the same thing with the dual degree. A lot of dual degree students, you'll find there's a whole there's a whole blog that like writes jokes about us, I guess. And there's an article where they describe the dual degree student and the PhD student decided to get a JD after their MD PhD, just just because you know there's always more to learn and more to discover, and it's 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 hard to imagine we only have one lifetime to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so besides. Um you know, taking classes and making decapitated flies dance. Like, were you involved with any other like organizations or activities or extracurriculars or anything like that? Yeah. Um, so I did get involved with quite a lot of things. As I said, um, Montreal, at, especially at that time, I think was, uh, I, I'm sure it still is, of course, after I left, not anymore. But, um, no, it's it's an exciting city to be in. Um, there's a lot that's happening. Um, 
So in terms of things on our campus, I got super involved with um, sort of journals, science journals on campus, um, becoming sort of um, involved as an editor and then later as an editor-in-chief, um, both for our undergrad science journal and then later on for um, medical science, medical, medical, medical school journal, becoming um, sort of a junior editor. Um, and then was involved with, um, because I do love deba debating people, and um, I was never, um, we, when I was in Halifax, so I was raised in Halifax, Nova Scotia, um, I never had the chance to kind of get involved in Model UN, and it always seemed so cool to me, you know. Um, so I actually got involved in Model World Health Organization in, in college, which was which was a really fun thing um, to sort of um, get involved in and then later on um, organize. Um, and then, you know, he, I was doing different things here and there, um, volunteering with um, public speaking organizations. So these were kind of, again, campus embedded things. Um, and just, it, it, you know, just, just trying to enjoy the experience of being in the city as much as I could and um, going around for shows and, you know, getting invited to strange, weird mm -hmm. things that, you know, you just, you're just walking and someone tells you, come in here. <laughs> and you're like, is this an art show? Is this, am I part of this art show or am I watching the art show? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are you, so how did you end up here in Michigan then? Yeah. So um, when I was applying for, um, so MD, PhD programs, um, it wasn't, so I initially, I think, yeah, I think so. I applied for programs in Canada the first time, like first time. And then I didn't it, actually one program. I, I applied to McGill. I was like, I'm going to stay in Montreal and I didn't get it. And so the next year I was like, I should probably expand my scope. Right. And so I applied to programs both in the U.S. and Canada. So in, in the U.S., um, the option there's actually for um, I'm considered an international because I'm Canadian. There's not that many options because um, programs are generally funded by um, sort of uh, the NIH. And so there's like limitations in terms of citizenship. So um, you have to go to programs that are more privately funded or funded in different ways. And so there are only a few programs and then there are only a few programs. So the majority of MD, PhD programs are focused on an MD combined with basic science research. So we're actually people who are doing research in non-basic science, non-bench lab research are actually a rare species in the MD, PhD world. Um, so I had to find a program that kind of had research in, in EPI. So the, the list was just narrowed and narrowed. And then I applied to Canadian programs as well. And in Canada, we don't have that many schools, medical schools um, with combined programs compared to the U.S. because it's a population of 30 million people. And so it was really funny because um, for interviews, it was just a group of us going from city to city. <laughs> At the end, it was the same people um, going to interviews and we were like, Okay, one is out. Who's next? <laughs> Which one of you? Um, so, yeah, so it, it ultimately came down to um, kind of what place accepted me, what place um, sort of offered at least partial funding and what place had the kind of research I was interested in. So um, it's, it's, you know, it's kind mm -hmm. of those things, narrow your choices. And then you're like, I guess I'm going to Michigan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was, it was fun though. So when I came here, I wasn't expecting to come. So I, I was just like, you know, I was very, um, 
I was, so I, I came in mid-February for my interview and I ended up in one of the hotels, which was not at all near sort of any buildings, but was across from one of the fields where there were, there were horses and cows. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, interesting. This is a farm school. <laughs> so I had a very different impression of, you know, um, what I was coming to. And so it's it was really interesting, but I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Was there, so, you know, coming from, from Canada to you know, the Northern US, maybe, you know, culturally there's not as much a difference but was there like a culture shock you know whether it was from moving from country to country or even just like city to you know Lansing or yeah. anything like that <laughs> yeah so so I've had the um, privilege of um, living in a lot of different places over my life so I grew up in Iran lived in Poland for like all my childhood and then went back to Iran and moved across Canada um, so I'm kind of used to, I'm actually much more used to being in a place that's strange for me. It's it's mm. kind of my comfort zone um, where you don't understand the language and you don't know where you're going. I'm like, this is, this is my place. <laughs> um, but uh, I think there was a culture shock because the first time I came to Michigan, someone told me, oh, you're going to love tailgating. And I was like, <laughs> so for me, tailgating is, you know, when the cars are just just mm-hmm. very close to each other. That's how I knew ta- ta- mm-hmm. what tailgating was in Quebec. And so I was extremely confused why this would be a hobby or an activity <laughs> in Michigan. You know, I was like, do you just, do you just go and like yeah. follow other cars? Is that, <laughs> is that what the action? And I didn't ask. I was like, okay, well, I'm sure I will. <laughs> and it wasn't until, you know, when I came to Michigan, the first weekend of a game, um, our sort of classmates, um, what you know our group of classmates invited me they were like come to our tailgate and I was like is this really happening and then I realized it wasn't actually cars just following each other closely so um there are little things like that but I think um as a whole Michigan is just so close to Canada that you know um there's idiosyncrasies and Mm -hmm. we notice them but then there's also you know a a deep sense of familiarity yeah and like what like when did you move from like Iran to Poland to like Canada and all these, like, like, was this when you were young, you know, or just like yeah. throughout your entire life? Yeah. So it was very, it was when I was very young. So with um, Iran to Poland, it was like, I was like one years old or even less than that. Um, we lived there until I was about six or so. Um, so I would speak Polish. I don't remember it now, but I think if, if I hit my head on something, it'll just come back to me and I'll just start speaking Polish. It must be in there somewhere, right? It's yeah. somewhere, somewhere in TV in my brain. You're the doctor. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> my theory. Uh, someone should do research on that. Um, yeah. So not, not, a neuro, not a neuroscientist though. So <laughs> I know my limitations. Um, yeah. So, and then we went back to Iran. So this was actually because my dad at the time um, was studying in school. So I've kind of followed my parents and their academic routes um, throughout the years. And so um, we, he kind of worked at ports, um, shipbuilding. And so we always kind of followed the shipyards. Poland has a very famous shipyard. Um, it was actually the site of the um, kind of Polish revolution. It's the Gdansk shipyard. Um, and then, yeah, so I lived there and then we went back to Iran and then we came to Canada again for education, to pursue higher education, Halifax, which is another place with a famous shipyard. So always, mm. always just following the sea. And even in Iran, we, we would go from shipyard to shipyard. So, 
Um, although I'm not a good swimmer. People are like, <laughs> you must swim really well. Well, isn't that the whole thing about ships? It says you, so you don't have to swim. I feel exactly. like. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, that's what I'm saying. Uh, I don't know if you know, but until like 20th century, many sailors did not know how to swim. And this is a fact that I bring up and people are like, why are you telling me this? I'm like, <laughs> just so you know, <laughs> because, you know, as a sailor, like if you're in the middle of the ocean and you need to swim, you're basically done yeah. for, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing. Like I get in the airplane, but I don't know how to fly. If that airplane's going down, like, well, I guess I'm just done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a parachute might help, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Very cool. Do you, do you have any places like when you're done here of like, Ooh, I would like to live here next or explore this other, other place. Yeah. So I, I think um, that's something that I sometimes think about, but I try not to think about because you just never know um, where life's going to lead you. One thing that I do try to keep in my head is that I want to um, stay open to every possibility. Right. Um, I never, ever, 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 ever expected to come to Michigan um, until basically a month before, you know, I found out I was coming to Michigan. And um, I find that when you kind of, it's, it's different when you, you know, you have a very strong family presence and geographic factors that kind of bind you to a place. Um, for me, um, I don't really have that. Um, so my family, even as a whole, um, even the extended family, they're spread all over the world. So um, I've always felt like, you know, it's just like there's an attitude that people, you know, p- people beside the sea or sailors or whatever have that, you know, as long as you're beside the sea, you're connected to every place. Right. And it's, it's kind of the same principle for me, especially now, you know, we are basically connected. Right. So um, I am happy to go wherever life leads me. Um, you know, maybe it'll be somewhere <laughs> nice and sunny next time, <laughs> but I seem to be just going to colder and colder places. So maybe it'll be Alaska. Who knows? <laughs> um, so like, do you have any like current hobbies or anything like that to just like relax or get away from work or research or whatever? Yeah. So, uh, um, do I relax? No. <laughs> Do I get away from research? Yes. So I think one of the major hobbies that I developed when I um, came to Michigan, and it's pretty interesting um, because people are like, this is a very Montreal thing. Why are you? It's a, it's a very, you know, French thing. Why are you doing it in Michigan? So I actually got super into poetry when I came to Michigan. Um, this was not something that I did in Montreal at all. Um so I wasn't going to poetry shows in Montreal, like, you know, <laughs> tapping my fingers. <laughs> when I came here, I discovered that there was a strong sort of literary and um, poetry community here on campus, but also just outside in the Lansing community. And I started going to workshops um, and open houses. Um, so there's a place called the Robin Theater um, in Rio Town. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. or not. Um, absolutely fantastic. Shout out to them. So they hold... Um, open houses or um, open mic nights um, in collaboration with the poetry room. And I've been participating in that for the past four years. Um, I've translated Persian poetry for years and years, but I never kind of had the courage to kind of perform my own poetry. And so that was something when I came to Michigan that I started doing. And so for me, um, when I was coming here, I wasn't thinking, you know, um, 
the underground art scene in Michigan, but there's actually a really thriving um, underground, I guess, overground art scene here. And I'm, I feel so lucky to kind of be a part of it. So this past month I had an, op- I had a performance um, and yeah, so that's, that's been one of the things that, that has been a major part of my life these past four, four years. Yeah. So how does, um, so I know this is like, just like big thing in general, like translating, you know, like books or anything like that with poetry, it seems like it's so, you know, poetry is like, it's so dependent on like individual word choices and all that, and, you know, in certain languages, you know, there's just not, you know, an equivalent word or something like that. So like, how is that sort of like experience or difficulty, like translating from Persian into English or whatever? Yeah, so it's something that I'm constantly learning about. So I'm not a professional translator by any means, or there's people whose entire sort of PhDs and entire lives are dedicated to translating, right? And translating literature and translating poetry is is its own beast. So for me, it's been kind of a hobby. And I think it arose from the fact that there were times where I wanted to show people a translation of uh certain Persian poem, um, generally classic classical poems, but also some modern poems that I really like because poetry is a huge part of um, Iranian culture. Um, and so I wanted to share that with people, but I would find either no translations or translations that were done very um, poorly or um, beautifully, but very decontextualized, right? So if it's being translated by someone who has not at all been immersed in Persian culture and they're kind of they're just taking the words at face value. Um, so I thought, you know, let me make my own contribution, acknowledging that this is any translation, I think is fundamentally just an interpretation of a work. It's not, um, it's not the way we think we think of translation as something objective, but really it's just an interpretation in a different language of that original work. So it's a transformative piece. And I think my translations are kind of my interpretation of the work. I do try to stay um, true to kind of as much as I can read about the poet themselves, um, sort of understand kind of possibly what where they were coming from with this poem and try to also stay as true as I can to some of the word choices. But some words are, you're, I'm talking, these are a thousand year old poets, right? Um, Rumi, um, uh, you know, uh, Ferdowsi, Sadi, these are, you know, thousand year old men in the middle of Iran that were writing these poems. And so there are some words that are very difficult, even as a Persian speaker, for me to understand, um, not the word itself, but the underlying meaning. Um, and to translate it is a, you know, very challenging task. But, you know, you, you just, you try your best um acknowledging the limitations, just like you do in science, right? Um, any any interpretation of data is not the absolute truth. It's just an interpretation. So, Yeah, yeah. So sort of like wrapping things up a little bit, uh, I like to ask people if you have any advice for, say, undergrads thinking about doing some sort of like graduate school work or like first year, like grad students or med students or whatever of like kind of adapting to that lifestyle? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the first things um, is sort of, and it's kind of corny to say, but I think being persistent about um, 
if you know what you want to be very persistent about it. Um, so yesterday I was contacted by one of my friends, old friends from McGill who um, had been planning to apply to medical school like years ago. And they kind of, you know, they, they went a different route. They went to academia and they contacted me a while back and they were like, this is something I still think about. Do you think I should do it? And I was like, well, you know, if it's something that's coming in your mind and, you know, you can't let go of it, I say, just go for it, you know, do it and apply for it and see where it takes you. And they told me that they just got in. And so, um, you know, it's, it's never too late if there's something that keeps coming back in your mind, an idea or a path, um, I would say just, just pursue it um, and seek out resources. There's always people um, willing to help. So that's kind of, that's kind of a theme that's been for me. I've like gone down all these kind of different paths. I discovered new things, but when I found something that I liked, I kind of persisted and I kept going even, even if things got difficult. And I think that's kind of been um, really um, helpful. I would also say the second important thing, if you're in sort of grad school is to really don't be afraid to change things and find good mentors, um, find people um, that will, you know, support you. And if there is, you know, if you do find yourself in an unsupportive environment, don't be afraid to change. Um, because I've, you know, as I told you, I've, I changed a whole bunch of degrees, literally. And even in grad school, um, I changed mentors when I felt like we weren't a good match. So um, I think those are the two main things I would say. They're kind of contradictory, right? <laughs> one is persist, one is change. But I think um, if you think about it in the long scale of what you want in your life and what your passion is and um, what makes you happy, then thinking about at what point you need to persist and at what point you need to change, it, it kind of becomes much more clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that's great advice. Uh, thank you for coming on and doing this. It was really fun talking with you. No problem. Thank you so much. That was, this was excellent <laughs> and an excellent initiative. <laughs>